0: Talking history. This is
1: news talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender.
2: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for
3: man, one giant
2: leap for mankind. Auktion, Argus, a...
1: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, the tragic story of the women left behind by Captain Scott's fatal expedition to the Antarctic the life of Julian of Norwich the remarkable woman who wrote the first book in English 650 years ago and to end the show we'll be finding out about the death census of 1847 and the new insights we can learn from these eyewitness accounts of the Great Irish Famine You can email us your thoughts and views history at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you Last week we looked at the history of modern Ukraine and explored the roots of the terrible war going on today and if you want to listen back to this or to any of our our older shows just go to the NewsTalk app powered by Go Loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts We begin tonight's show with the untold history of Scott's fatal Antarctic expedition through the eyes of the women they left behind. And just to note that the Maritime History Weekend is taking place in Sligo this October and we'll be exploring uh, some of the themes around both this expedition and many others. The men who died on Captain Scott's Polar Party became heroes of their age, having furthered the reputation of the British Empire by reaching the South Pole. But they were also husbands, fathers, sons and brothers And a new book tells the story of the race for the South Pole Told through the perspective of the women whose lives would be forever changed by it Five women who offer a window into a lost age And a revealing insight into the thoughts and feelings of the five explorers The book is called Snow Widows The Untold History of Scott's Fatal Antarctic Expedition Through the Eyes of the Women They Left Behind It's published in hardback by William Collins And I'm delighted to welcome the author Catherine McKinnon to the show tonight. Catherine, you're very welcome.
2: Hello. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Can you remind our listeners about just how significant this expedition was and how it captured the imagination, especially of people in Britain, uh, because this was, of course, the great age of explorers?
2: It was, exactly. um, I suppose that its significance was um, that the Americans, uh, there were two claimants for the North Pole, so uh, it was the time that the sun didn't set on the British Empire. And so uh, the Royal Geographic Society was determined to uh, put a Brit on the South Pole, basically, to try to get there first. They didn't manage, but that was, that was the sort of significance. And as to the sort of impact of it, um, perhaps we can come to that, but um, in 1913 in February, when the news came back, it was an international news story. Of bigger proportions than the sinking of the Titanic. The news flashed around the whole world. It was in 700 newspapers the day after um, the news came back, um, which was of course a year after the men had died because at that point with uh, telegrams and very um, early forms of communication including carrier pigeons and that sort of thing um, they couldn't get the news back from the Antarctic for a year.
1: And it's a brilliant idea to tell the story of the exhibition, not through the men who, who died, but through the women who were left behind and who had a, a range of different life experiences afterwards.
2: Well, absolutely, because they came from different parts of society. Um, so at that time, they were very rigid class uh, structure. And so, for example, Captain Oates was a paying guest Uh, He was the equivalent of a millionaire now today, and he paid a penny to be the equivalent of a sort of midshipman on this expedition. He was actually army, and it was predominantly a Royal Naval expedition. So he was extremely rich. And um, one of the other men was the top of the uh, ratings class of the uh, Royal Navy. So Taff Mm -hmm. Evans um, had a very modest background, and so for him this was going to translate into a pension and um, financial security. Captain Oates didn't need that. So this, it reflects in their respective uh, wives or mothers. So Captain Oates's mother was extremely rich. They owned effectively a village in Essex. She had a set of servants there in London, at her house in London, and she kept on his servants in India because he was serving with the Inner Skilling Guards in India. So she was organising all those people as well as the village school and a lot of the village farms. But interestingly, she was anti-suffrage at this extraordinary kind of time where the suffragette movement was gaining momentum. She was anti-suffrage, even though she was managing hundreds of people. Um, And then on the other end of the scale, Lois Evans, um, when Captain Scott asked the men to forego their second year salary, in order for them to be able to stay a second year in the Antarctic, to be able to get to the South Pole. Um, we think that probably Taff gave up his uh, salary, which meant that Lois, who had three children, was destitute, effectively.
1: And I think the story of Lois Evans was the one that struck me the, the most, because there was a huge class element in the way the story of her husband Taff was was, was told in the media and that he was blamed in some accounts because, really because of his background.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. It, it was the most extraordinary situation. So really, ironically and sadly, this started with Taff's mother, Sarah Evans, who was approached very shortly after the news had broken um, when they said that, Taff Evans was the first to die, and when they found Scott's diary, it said that uh, Taff had lost his reason. Actually, the reason that he'd done that is because he had a head injury. He'd fallen into a crevasse. He also had an infected cut on his hand, possibly septicemia, maybe scurvy on top of all that. So he was an extremely bright uh, person. Captain Scott at one other uh, point earlier in the expedition said he has an remarkable headpiece referring to his brain. He was really, really bright, but because of these injuries he became debilitated and became, as Scott said, a dangerous burden to them all. So when Sarah Evans uh, heard that this had been published because Scott's diaries were found on his frozen body and then brought back and published, she said uh, perhaps it would have been better if they'd left him behind. Perhaps they would have survived if they'd left him behind, which is an extraordinary thing to have said about your son, But anyway, as a result of this, uh, the Evans family were very badly bullied for a long time because um, he was considered to be responsible for the tragedy.
1: And Lois Evans had a very harsh life and uh, had to deal with problems of poverty and as well as all of that media scrutiny and criticism.
2: Absolutely. And when the news came back, so um, sort of around the 11th to the 13th of February 1913, Um, there was a huge outpouring of um, public donations to a fund which was called the Mansion House Fund, and it raised thousands and thousands of pounds, millions in today's money. And the World Geographic Society, who represented the establishment with a capital E, had to decide how to apportion that money to the widows and the uh, relatives. And they decided on an amount to give Kathleen, who is Captain Scott's wife, and the amount for Peter, later Sir Peter Scott, her son. And uh, the amount that they gave to Taff's family, so Lois Evans and those three children, was less than they gave to Peter. So she had to try and uh, bring those three children up on that money. Actually, at one point, they offered to take their oldest child off her hands and put him into an orphanage. That was considered to be a very generous patriarchal gesture at the time, but uh, Lois refused. <laughs> um, and so, yes, she uh, made a living by um, scraping for cockles on a beach in the uh, Oxwich Bay, which is near the Gower Peninsula. So when the news came back, um, she, her cousin had taken her and her youngest child Ralph, down to the sands at low tide to scrape for cockles, which they then put in jars and sold in Swansea for money. Um, but when he, he came back before the tide had come up, and uh, Lois said, "Why, why have you come before you know before the tide's up?" And he had a telegram in his hand, and um, the telegram was actually from her brother, in who was a Royal Navy uh, ratings as well, and it said, uh, "Terrible news. Try to bear up. Uh, best wishes, Stan, who is her brother." But she had no idea what had happened. So then, uh, Will Tucker, her cousin, took her back on the ox cart back up to her parents' house in Gower. And there the uh, reporter from the Cambrian News um, came to her door and uh, she said, I've got a telegram, but I, I don't know why you're here, what's happened. And so the Cambrian News reporter had to tell her that her husband had died and, and how it had happened. And as he was telling her, a man was setting up a tripod with a camera on it. And so at the moment she was told there's an image of it. Uh, and so that image was then used in the press. So she had an extraordinarily difficult time. She really did, but she was amazing.
1: Oriana Wilson, her story really uh, stood out as well. She was married to the to Dr. Edward Wilson, the ship's uh, the, the expedition's doctor, but she was a fascinating figure in her own right, uh, had this scientific mind and had a very distinguished career after the expedition.
2: She absolutely did. And this is the most extraordinary thing because uh, my aunt in Alice Springs is very... Um, into birds, and she found the reference to the bats that Orianna collected actually in uh, Darwin in Australia in a place that no white woman had ever been, um, and those bats she sent back to the Natural History Museum and they were named Oriana Minopteris, so they were named after her and I found all these species in the Natural History Museum that she had collected. So nobody knew that she had become a collector for the Natural History Museum. She was also given a CBE for her work for the New Zealand soldiers during uh, the First World War. So she was an incredible lady. She started by being her husband's sort of scientific assistant um, in Fort Augustus, where they were studying why uh, the equivalent of bird flu now, actually, why the grouse were being decimated by disease and they try, were trying to get to the bottom of the disease so that's where she started being a scientist but after her husband's death she became a scientist in her own right but that, these women were so invisible before, nobody knew what they had done so it's been quite a journey trying to, trying to find it out but yes, she's fascinating, I've written another book on her, just on her called Women with Iceberg Eyes um, which is how I found the All Five Women, um, which is a, a bigger story, a broader story, which tells us, you know, a kind of more, um, I don't know, a more nuanced version of, of the whole thing, because some of the people were very pro-Scott at the end. For example, Oriana Wilson. Some of them were very anti-Scott. So uh, Caroline Oates, Captain Oates's mother, pointed at the statue of Scott Um, much later in the 1930s and said, that man killed my son. A tragic thing, but that's how she felt. So generally, these books about Scott and Shackleton divide into pro and anti, but in this case, the five women behind that famous picture of the five men standing at the South Pole, you know, one of the first selfies, and that was developed posthumously. After they died, they found a camera and they developed that film But those five women give you the full range from pro-Scott to anti-Scott so it gives you the whole spectrum of opinion.
1: And I suppose you can understand why that when a, a loved one dies you always, and in these circumstances you always want to find someone to blame and it perhaps is easier for your grief if it's if if you can pinpoint some other figure and blame them. T- tell me about uh, Kathleen Scott, uh, the wife of Robert Scott, the expedition leader, because she's a remarkable figure as well in her own right, a very distinguished and notable sculptor. And she produced a number of mem- memorials to her husband. But uh, she was, you know, hugely supportive or protective of her husband's reputation.
2: She really was and i just thought i might mention um for your listeners that um Kathleen was uh, related to sir harvey bruce um uh, who had a house called downhill in ulster and um before she grew up in a convent orphanage because her parents died um where she was obliged to bathe in a shift lest she catch sight of her own naked body so she had an extremely conservative um upbringing And after school, she went to stay with her uncle, and um, he was a baronet. Um, And I'll just read you a tiny bit. It says, that evening after tea, he said to me, look here, my dear, would you like to live here? You would pour out the tea and mend the china and things, and there would be no one here for you to get into mischief with. Think it over. You wouldn't be in my way. And then she thought it over, and she thought, but I want to get into mischief. (laughs) So that kind of tells you what she was like. She went off to the Slade and then from there to Rodin's studio in Paris. And when um, they were choosing the model for the day, a naked man got up on a podium, struck a pose, struck another pose and then got off. And uh, she looked around and she couldn't believe that all her fellow students were just looking at this perfectly naked person. And she ran out and was sick in the loo. But afterwards, she became quite obsessed by the male nude. And so the reason that she married Captain Scott in the first place was really for his genes because he'd already been on the Discovery expedition and she felt that he had proved himself to be a Superman. So she said that she wasn't in love with him when she married him. She just wanted to uh, have... She called him a lion. She was looking for a a physical specimen. Um, And after they got married and after she had Peter, she then fell in love with him.
1: And was there a suggestion that she was... It was her drive that, in a way, in some ways, it led the husband to take unnecessary risks.
2: Um, It's an interesting thought, isn't it? She um, gave Scott some letters to open um, when he was in the Antarctic, because obviously they couldn't communicate, but she gave him some post-dated letters um, to open. And in one of those letters, she told him uh, to risk his life if he thought that it was worth it. And not to worry about her and Peter because they could do without him. And she said it's a most extraordinary letter because she um, tells him that it won't be and then crosses out won't and then says wouldn't be your physical life that would benefit us most. You know, the implication is it would be his reputation. So she has made his name as in she has given him a son so the scott name is going to continue and it's now his responsibility to make his rep his name in his reputation um but yes it's amazing isn't it that she crossed out won't and wrote wouldn't so it's almost as if she anticipated it and i would suggest that that was one of the most important driving forces for scott the, the other men around him in that famous picture of that selfie at the south pole didn't know that she had told him that do or die is basically what she told him. So for example, Captain Oates was going just because it would be faster promotion in the army. And because he wanted the adventure, um, Taff Evans was going because he wanted to be able to get a pension and he wanted to come back to Gower and perhaps have the reputation as Tom Queen did, who bought a pub in the Dingle Peninsula and uh, to set up a pub with his uh, wife Lois. Um, so the other men weren't uh, in it to do or die, but Kathleen Scott had told Scott that, and that, and he was the leader, and so that's how it worked.
1: You do get a, an insight into the the culture of empire at this time, and uh, the way they became part of the, the the public narrative about the expedition and the tragedy and what had happened. And it really provides a, a new way of thinking about this whole period.
2: Well, I hope so. That's what I've really tried to do when I've written it. So it's written. Um passing the narrative between the five women so that it's just one line of narrative from 1910 to 1913. So it's just before the beginning of the First World War. It's that last gasp of sort of Edwardian England. And yes, the the empire was the biggest uh, influence on on the expedition, the mindset of empire, the sort of responsibility of Britain to um, conquer places and uh, make them democratic, and perhaps then allow them to be self-governing. Um, and the whole kind of commercial enterprise behind it—you know—was there coal at the South Pole? Was there gold? That sort of thing. It was a, you know, a very interesting, different era.
1: And a final question then, Catherine, when you look at the story of the, the stories, the different stories of these women, what sense do you get about, I suppose, how heroism was viewed at, the, at that time? You know, the idea of it's a kind of maybe an early form of celebrity as well.
2: It definitely was an early form of celebrity because these five women, the Snow Widows, became the representative widows for the... First World War when there were masses of widows. So they looked to these five women. Um, At the time they were very well known. It's only you know sort of in the hundred years in between they've become invisible. Um, But yes at that point also just before the First World War uh, Herbert Ponting had taken a film of the Terranova expedition and that film was shown in the trenches because the heroism of self-sacrifice particularly of Captain Oates who became very frostbitten and said to his tentmates, um, I'm, I may be sometime, I'm going out, I may be sometime, uh, so that they didn't follow him. And so he sacrificed himself so that to give them a better chance. That was considered to be a very inspiring thing to happen in the trenches. But the extraordinary thing is that because of the lapse of 100 years, there are now papers available in the National Archives, which show that um, Oates had cousins in Germany on the other side in the war and they were actually held in an internment camp but it was a top secret because these women and men were so so iconic at the time of the first world war it was really important to keep oates's german connection secret so they are under the title trading with the enemy or kind and uh, and they've only just been revealed just before i wrote this book so nobody knew about that until then
1: I you know, some brilliant finds in the book and some brilliant archival research. The book is called Snow Widows The Untold History of Scott's Fatal Antarctic Expedition Through the Eyes of the Women They Left Behind, published in hardback by William Collins. The author is Catherine McInnes. And Catherine, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
2: That's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
1: We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. This spring marks the 650th anniversary of the publication of Revelations of Divine Love, a book published by Julian of Norwich, the first known woman to write in English. And a new novel, to be published in April by Hodder and Stoughton, provides a reimagining of Julian's extraordinary life. The book is called I, Julian, and to discuss who Julian of Norwich really was, I'm delighted to be joined by the author, Dr. Claire Gilbert, the director of the Westminster Abbey Institute, whose doctorate was on ecological consciousness and Julian of Norwich and she's a visiting fellow at Jesus College Cambridge. Claire, you're very welcome to the show. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's a fascinating life and a fascinating time of history. Can you maybe uh, describe this period of history because it's medieval England, there's a plague and in our post-pandemic world, it's a it's a it's a time that maybe has some resonances for us.
3: It certainly does have resonances. There's the pestilence, as they called it in the 14th century, which came back and back and back during the century. And although our pandemic was in shorter time, you might say, we did have that experience of of the first wave and then the second wave and then the third wave and that awful depression of lockdown again and again and again. And you get the same sense of that in the 14th century. But there was also war and there was There was persecution. Now, in in the 14th century, it was church persecution. The church was really enormous culturally in the in the life of the of medieval England. But you might um, read across to our time the culture wars, and we talk about cancel culture and people trying to work out a new language and being very angry with each other and polarized opinions. And it's not a million miles from the idea of heresy and excommunicating people because they didn't think the right things or believe in the right way or express their faith in the right way. So there are lots and lots of resonances.
1: So tell us about Julian then. How much do we know about her? uh, When she lived? What she did? Are we even certain that that's exactly her name? We're not
3: certain about anything, Patrick. It's it's really interesting. The text itself, beautiful, beautiful text, Revelations of Divine Love, The manuscripts we have for that are all late. They're much later than the 14th century, when in the manuscript, in the text itself, the author says, I had these revelations in May 1373. So May 2023 is the 650th anniversary of the visions. Now, in the text, it says, I had these visions in 1373, other people have written, a bit like you have the author page in a, in a book today, other people have written on those manuscripts that it's by Julian of Norwich. Um, but these are later editions and the manuscripts are late. But we also know independently that there was an anchoress, uh, a, a hermit called Julian, um, who was attached to the Church of St. Julian in Norwich from legacies, because she's mentioned um, as someone whom Marjorie Kemp met, Marjorie Kemp uh, wrote an account, and her manuscript is contemporary. So there's evidence that there was someone called Julian, Julian of Norwich, who lived uh, mid-14th to early 15th century. Putting those manuscripts together with that person is—it's impossible to be absolutely certain. All we have is that she says in the text, she says I'm a woman, and she says in the text I had these visions in 1373. So it's—it's it's surmise, and and in my book I I. Surmise that it is the case uh, that she did this. So there's a lot about her early life, her experience of the of the, of the pestilence plague, um, her losing her family, um, and then going into an anchor hold um, as, as an anchoress in her later life, and living until 1417, 1418, I think, because the last the last legacy is 1416. So if if it is the same person, um, she lived a very long time because she says she has her visions when she's 30. That's 1373, uh, and then the last legacy is in 1416, naming her 73 or 4. She would have been, which is which is interesting. So these are these are educated guesses, but most scholars do agree that it is the same person.
1: And tell us then about the publication of Revelations of Divine Love and why does that book really matter? Uh, is, it, is it significant in its own right? Does it have that added significance given that it's the earliest surviving English language work that we know is written by a woman?
3: All of that, yes. It is a very beautiful book and it has a spirituality that's quite unlike other books written at that time. It's, it's so loving. And it's so accepting. It's not a manual on how to be good or how to be spiritual. It's simply Julian saying, I'm assuming it's Julian, (laughs) saying, uh, I saw this. This happened to me. It was uh, so powerful. And as she writes about these visions, it's as if she's reliving them. And you, the reader, are reliving them with her. And she says, don't look at me. I'm not special. Look at what I saw and have that direct encounter with God yourself. And if you read the text carefully and prayerfully, which is what I always recommend, you can you can start to feel that. I mean, even if you're not religious, uh, and it somehow has resonated in the 20th century and and on, it she is becoming more and more her writings becoming more and more popular. And yes, the fact that she wrote uh, that, it, as far as we know, this is the earliest book written by a woman. I'm I I, I feel. Uh, that she should be recognized alongside Chaucer she was an, a contemporary of Chaucer, and the writing is very very beautiful it's a different genre he, he, uh, but it's but it's very very beautiful it's certainly poetic and uh and she she's she belongs there in the canon alongside Chaucer and piers plowman it's it's uh oh uh, it's it's beautiful, beautiful
1: stuff and you've lived with Julian and her work for you know, going all the way back to your PhD and possibly earlier. What what attracted you so much to the story of Julian and what inspired you then to write her fictional autobiography?
3: I fell in love with Julian as an undergraduate when I was reading theology and she was the bright light in a very dry degree uh, at Oxford University in theology. She was she just shone out. So I, 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 I first met her in the 80s and have been in love with her ever since. The doctorate was um, was looking at how this wonderful melting love, you might say, this porosity um, that she evokes in her reader, is, is, this is the right attitude we should have towards the environment today. That's why she, she teaches us how to have the right kind of ecological consciousness, which isn't controlling and objectifying, but receptive and in service. But then after I'd re- finished my doctorate, I got diagnosed with cancer. And I had two and a half years of really grueling treatment. And she stopped being my academic study and became my companion. And she was a wonderful, wonderful companion through those years. And I wrote about it in Miles to Go Before I Sleep, also published by Hodder. It's a, that was a raw book, and she is through, through and through it. And as I was coming out of the treatment, I had what I can only describe as a kind of call cool to tell Julian's story with the same raw, First-person honesty—the the voice that I found in writing about my cancer—to tell her story in that way, and it felt audacious. First of all, to tell anybody's story in the first person is making a big claim because you're basically speaking out of their identity. Secondly, because she didn't want us to look at her, she wanted us to look at her visions. Um, but she—but she, if I can put it like this, she she let me. She let me write it, and it wrote itself very very quickly. Although, then there's a whole process of editing, but. It felt like it's such an important thing to try and do in homage to her, really, to the companion that she'd been to me and uh, the teacher I feel she is as far as the environment is concerned.
1: And her prayer that all shall be well, that has resonated. It clearly resonated with you. It resonated with people yes. during the pandemic. It's, it's something it that uh, does capture the imagination of people.
3: It really does. And it's important to say that her all shall be well as indeed our all shall be well now post-pandemic or having gone through the pandemic and all the other troubles that we're facing. People, things are not easy now for, for everybody. Uh, it, the all shall be well comes out of walking towards the challenge and the pain and, the, and, the, and, and, and everything that's being asked of you, the trial of the difficult things in your life. This is what I found with the cancer, you see. You walk towards it. You don't try and suppress it or push it away or ignore it. You walk towards it, and that's what she did. You walk towards it, and by walking towards it and receiving it porously and receptively, uh, you you move through it, and you find there is comfort. But it's real comfort. There's nothing motherhood and apple pie about this. It's, 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 it's a hard one, all shall be well. And T.S. Eliot, who really is responsible for our rediscovery of Julian in the 20th century, he cites this work phrase, all shall be well, in the Four Quartets. Um, his, his receiving of Julian's spirituality was as he was looking at the rise of Nazi Germany. And similarly, these very, very challenging times. You don't just say, oh, it'll all be all right in the end. You really receive and accept what's happening uh, and respond to it. And then you discover uh, all shall be well.
1: And there is a conflict there, or maybe to our modern eyes, there seems to be a tension there between the life of freedom that she found for herself and that role as an anchoress, uh, as a hermit bricked up in a small room on the side of a church. There does seem to be a, uh, for us that wouldn't seem like a life of freedom, but for her it was a way of, of finding a new life for herself.
3: That's right. Yes, I mean, we have to imagine ourselves into that world and the options that were available to women, I'm bound to say. Um, I I do actually think of it, in part at least, as being like uh, Virginia Woolf wrote a book called A Room of One's Own, which was all about the importance of women who wanted to write, finding a space that was their own, where they could close the door and and the world could go away and they could focus on their writing. And I very much had that in mind as I wrote about Julian Wanting almost needing to have this um, life of a hermit, where she could close the window on the world. She, she she did meet people to counsel them, and she had a servant, but but and and a confessor. So she did meet people. She wasn't completely isolated, but she could close the curtain and, in safety, write what what was at the time would have at the time been quite dangerous words, uh, because the church was looking for heretics. Um, it, it and and also. And this is very important to me, too, to do justice to her need to go very, very deep in her contemplation, in her spirituality, and needing silence and apartness in order to do that. So it's, it, I really hope in the book I make sense of her decision. It's not mad. It may, it's, it's absolutely rational, given those circumstances.
1: And how much do you think she was aware of all the events that were taking place outside of and all around her the peasant's revolt the black death you know all of these uh, all of this turmoil that was going on would she have been aware of that or, or
3: I think she I think she must have been I certainly imagine her to have so that features in the in the in the novel as well because um the anchor, the anchorite the, the hermit and one of their roles is to offer counsel so people come to talk to them and so she would have heard the news, and also from her servant who was going backwards and forwards to for provisions and so forth. And she and her, the Church of Saint Julian, which is still there, is just ten minutes from the cathedral in Norwich. It's it's very close to the city centre. So there would have been a lot of traffic of people around her, and I think she was only too aware. And all, the other thing, the other thing, is, this features in the book. The Henry de Spencer, who was the bishop at the time, was was a fighter, and he was absolutely determined to find the heresies and and do them out. and that, And the reason it, it, it's relevant for Julian is that she was writing in English, and the heretics were seeking to translate the Bible into English, and they wanted to jettison Latin, and they wanted to jettison the priests, and they wanted ordinary people to be able to speak in their own language of the things of God. So Julian was very close to this, and Uh, and the bishop was um, looking, actively looking for heretics. So she would have needed to be very aware of who was in the church to which she was attached, who was passing by the window, someone who came for counselling, claiming to come for counselling, who might have been one of the bishop's agents, a spy to see if she's actually turning into a heretic, and maybe she's teaching heretical teachings to to other people who come to see her. It's a very porous cell, you know. (laughs) The world enters
1: And given that she had a servant and was able to read and write and was respected in the community, was there any social pressure on her to, to do other things? And was there any kind of tension there in terms of the life she wanted to lead for herself?
3: Yes, I, I again, it's 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 imagining, but but a, a realistic imagining. But uh, yes, so people did want to come and see her. And so I have the servant, oh, there are two servants, Alison and then Sarah, um, ha- playing some part in ensuring that she does have space and time to herself uh, for prayer and also writing um, so that she's not so, so there's just a the time in the day when, when like having a, an MP surgery or something know the people can come and, come and speak to her um, but it does seem that they came from far and wide because this account by Marjorie Kemp talks about her fame and how she's advised to come and visit her and talk to her so we can imagine that she was in demand and it would have been a pressure
1: very good. Well, my thanks to Dr. Claire Gilbert, the author of I, Julian, for joining me tonight. It's a forthcoming book about the life of this really remarkable woman from medieval English history and the author of the first known work in English by a woman. Uh, Claire, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History, bringing together 100 eyewitness statements. Of almost 50,000 words of testimony, the death sentence of 1847 provides a new insight into the tragedy of the Great Irish Famine. And it's been brought together in a brilliant new analysis, The Death Census of Black 47, Eyewitness Accounts of Ireland's Great Famine, published in hardback by Anthem Press and brought together by Liam Kennedy, Donald McRaeld, Lewis Darwin and Brian Gurren. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of the authors, Liam Kennedy, tonight. Liam, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. And Liam, could we begin by actually just talking about what actually was the death census?
0: Yeah, the death census was organised by the Repeal Association. and John O'Connell, the son of the Liberator, Daniel O'Connell, was the, the key mover. And the idea was to produce a national survey of famine conditions and numbers of people killed in the localities, in parishes, uh, during Black 47, the worst year of the Great Famine. So the, the Repeal Association sent out what I suppose we now call um, postal questionnaires to parish priests and curates around Ireland. And they got, if you think in social survey terms, they got quite a good response, a um, sort of 10% national sample, although I think the original idea was more ambitious than that. And I suppose what what is is really important about all of this is that, you know, the people describing famine conditions in their own parishes, the priests, are men who are intimately associated, you know, with the people locally. They're embedded in those communities. They're not bureaucrats, they're not visitors passing fleetingly through. And I think it brings us closer than many other sources to the the real and terrible experience of the Great Famine,
1: And the book brings together, the death sentence, these different reports. And do you think they've been used by historians to to the extent that they should have been or that they could have been in the past?
0: No, not at all.
1: I mean, it's a kind of a mystery
0: in a way because um, these sources, these reports... um, were there in plain view, in a way. I mean, they were published in the pilot newspaper, the um, repeal, um, if you like, in-house newspaper, um, and also in, in, in some of the local newspapers. But they just had an ephemeral existence. And, um, I mean, I was incredibly surprised to find these, and I've worked on, on the Great Famine for many years. So I, I am mean, you know, self-criticism here. I mean, much the same boat as most other historians. I think what shielded them from the view was the fact that they were published only once and they were published episodically. So um, historians and others could sort of, you know, see what seems like a letter to a local newspaper and think, well, you know, that's, uh, there are lots of those, that's it. But what wasn't realized was that This was a systematic survey with um, questions about the famine locally. Um, And it's really when you see it as a corpus of text, you know, 50,000 words or so, um, one realizes that, you know, this this is a major lost text in relation to the Irish famine.
1: And you get wonderful new insights from the the different texts. And sometimes you see the politics seems to to intrude in it, and that seems to influence what's being reported. In other cases, it's more objective and attempting to make this appeal for aid and help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no doubt some of the reports are um, quite politicised, but even in those cases, they're telling you quite a lot. And the you know, the detailed coverage of what's happening locally, that's what is really grist to the the reader's mail. Um, and, you know, there, there's something that really surprised me. I'm thinking of White Church in County Waterford, where um, the priest reports that one of his parishioners uh, has buried two of his children. He doesn't mention his wife. She may have died as well. And he's looking forward to his third child dying because he doesn't want that poor infant to um, experience the, the horrors of the, of the famine. You know, so it's a kind of psychological insight you really wouldn't get um, from many other sources. There's another one um, where clearly the the man in question um, has sunk into deep depression, takes arsenic, uh, and then, you know, in um, in that state of mind um, slits his wife's throat um, now I, there aren't that many instances of those kinds of um, I suppose examples of intra-family violence but you know we do, we do know from other famines as well that that's almost inevitable and Patrick is going to add one other thing and I'm just thinking of the, the war in Ukraine at the moment and um, And what that does to war correspondents, you know, the psychological effects on reporters. Well, you also get from the death census real insights into the the psychological impact of seeing, you know, parishioners suffering and dying all around them. The, Mm -hmm. The impact that had on priests. And if we could take a slightly lateral turn, but... If you remember John B. Keane's great play, The Field, which became a Hollywood film, and um remember the, the dominating character of the Boomer McCabe, whose land avarice, is a, is a key theme. But at one point, he berates the local parish priest and says, no priest had died during the Great Famine. Well, you know, it, it's quite clear that that is not the case. And it is also the case that... Um, the, the priests reporting, you know, writing these death census reports, to some extent unfolding their own emotion, and that um, is a really valuable set of insights. I
1: think. You mentioned Ukraine. You know, we're also thinking about the terrible tragedies in Turkey and Syria, and there are certain resonances here when you look at uh, the catastrophe and the way uh, people tried to respond.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, I, none of us can. Escape the shadow of um, famine in Africa and uh, in the parts of the Middle East, and the tragedy in Turkey and Syria at the moment, as you say. And yeah, the the real parallels in terms of thinking there. I mean, clearly, in the, in that instance, we're talking about a natural disaster, earthquake. In the Irish case in the eighteen forties, we're talking about another natural disaster. Which is, you know, a previously unknown disease, just wiping out the the main food of the people, the potatoes. And that might also, I mean, it's interesting in Turkey in particular at the moment. There is um, degrees of, um, I suppose, political opposition, um, political anger is a better way of putting it. Towards the authorities who hadn't planned sufficiently to contain the crisis, and um, yeah, the same point has been made made by John Mitchell, for instance, um, the young islander, uh, in relation to the famine. You know that um, well-known phrase: "The Almighty sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine." Now, you know, gross exaggeration there, but yes. Yeah, strong parallel with some of the anger we see currently in in, in Turkey in relation to the somewhat ineffectual efforts of the um, political administration in handling the crisis. A natural crisis and a political crisis woven together.
1: And even though there had been other famines during the 19th century and indeed after this one, Was it the length of this that made it uh, so disastrous, and that it had such a terrible impact, or what was the? Why did this become the 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 great terrible famine?
0: The length of time is absolutely crucial. I mean, it's in terms of European uh, nineteenth century history, there's nothing to compare with the duration of the Irish famine—four to five years, up to five years in some parts of the west of Ireland. That was absolutely unprecedented. And yeah, it's, it's worth making the point that even though many of us would, would say that Ireland was overpopulated relative to its resources on the eve of the famine in 1845, nonetheless, Irish society managed to handle the first year of um, potato failure quite well. Probably very, very few famine-related deaths Um, before the early summer of 1846. So it's that repeated crisis over and over again, 46, 47, and the blight is absent in 47, but the acreage of potatoes is is very small. It returns in 48, 49, and 50 in some some parts of Ireland as well. It's almost, it's not quite, but it's almost a unique famine in terms of its duration. And that's what really produces that.
1: It definitely does seem to become the defining moment for the, the emerging Irish nation or it, it, it defined it so much in terms of those who, those who survived and also those who, who left to go to other shores, especially to North America, who became hugely important, you know, in terms of the, the nationalist cause a- afterwards
0: yeah i mean the the diasporic consequences of the um the great famine are huge, yeah, as you say that North American diaspora, which played such an important part in subsequent um, political developments. you know if you think of the the land war, uh, American health is hugely important um even the nineteen sixteen rising and of course during the the whole revolutionary period however. Because I've worked on the Great Famine for many years, the danger of assuming it's become the defining feature of Irish identity, almost. And, and, you know, there's huge numbers of books and articles on the the famine in the last 20 years or so. But I still think it's not as important as 1916 and the revolutionary decade uh, in terms of shaping a sense of Irish identity, at the end of the day, the, you know, the rattle of guns and rifles somehow seems to resonate more—not just in Irish society, but you think of Canada and um, Vimy Ridge, the slaughter on Vimy Ridge, and the, during the Great War, Australia, New Zealand, you know, the Dardanelles and the Great War more generally—is again the defining feature. The Great Famine has risen to a higher point in terms of Irish national consciousness, but it, it doesn't displace you know, those other revolutionary events.
1: OK, well, my thanks to Professor Liam Kennedy for joining me tonight to talk about the death census of Black 47, which provides eyewitness accounts of Ireland's great famine. It's published in hardback by Anthem Press. The authors are Liam Kennedy, Donald McRaeld, Lewis Darwin and Brian Gurran. Thanks a million, Leem. Great to talk to you, Patrick. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marese O'Sullivan, Shannon Murphy on research and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.